This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, new faculty on staff uh, in the Gynecology Service, Department of Surgery, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in, uh, in New York, Emmeline Avicki. Hi, Emmeline. Hi, Dr. Ramirez. Thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. Oh, of course, no. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so this uh, this podcast uh, brings us to the topic of hospital volume and outcomes in uh, in patients with cervical cancer. You recently uh, published a, a really interesting article titled "Impact of Hospital Volume on Surgical Management and Outcomes for Early Stage uh, Cervical Cancer." So I wanted to ask you, um, obviously this is a, a topic of extreme relevance today as we consider you know, whether hospital volume impacts surgical guideline compliance and, and even more importantly, survival outcomes. So I wanted to first start by asking you to just uh, put this topic in context as it relates to the published uh, literature and, um, and why did you consider that this was a, an important question to evaluate? Thank you. Yes. The, ma the majority of patients diagnosed with cervical cancer are diagnosed at, at an early stage. So, and more recently, this cohort has received, received a lot of attention, particularly with the LAC trial. I'm not sure if you know anything about that. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Where it, you know, in, in your trial, the focus was really about mode of surgery. And that led to all of this attention to the, these patients. So with all of this heightened attention on patients with early stage disease, we wanted to just take a step back and ask the question, how often are patients with early stage disease receiving guideline-based care in the first place? And does hospital or provider volume affect this in any way? So the literature on guideline compliance in cervical cancer prior to our study focused on patients with locally advanced or advanced disease and really omitted this cohort of patients. And so for these reasons, we considered this to be an important study to perform. Yeah, and, um, and you know, certainly one of the things that always comes up with regards to the, um, to the topic of hospital volume is, uh, I mean, it's often challenging to tackle this, the issue that hospital volume does not always directly correlate with surgeon volume. And, and often at, at the core of what is truly important is what what is the the, the experience of, of the surgeon, the the, the learning curve of, the, of that surgeon. So what what were your thoughts with regards to to this issue and how how did you tackle this uh, as it pertains to differentiating hospital volume from surgeon volume? Yeah, you know this is always the challenge. You know within each hospital are potentially wide ranges of different provider volumes, and ideally a researcher would be able to perform both provider volume and hospital volume analyses in parallel, mm -hmm. and also to be, able to be able to perform a provider-level cluster analysis to mitigate the influence of any dominant provider on overall hospital volume. The focus of our analysis, you know, was whether or not guideline-compliant surgical management was being performed. So for this reason, provider-specific volume and techniques were not as important as overall hospital volume, how frequently the institution manages patients with early stage cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. So with, with that being the case for our analysis, <clears throat> we, 
we felt that um, evaluating hospital-specific volume would be an adequate proxy for provider volume. Yeah. So when you looked at, at designing this, this study, I, and I noticed that you used uh, the National Cancer Database, um, and, and I was wondering if you could also explain to particularly our international listeners as to what is the National Cancer Database and, and who has access to that. But also just uh, with regards to your inclusion and exclusion criteria, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So we, we performed a retrospective cohort study using the National Cancer Database, which for short we call it the NCDB. This is a nationwide hospital registry of cancer patients. It's, it's sponsored by the American Cancer Society and the American College of Surgeons. Um, the National Cancer Database base gathers information on, they estimate to be 70% of all new invasive cancer diagnosis from over 1,500 cancer-affiliated hospitals mm -hmm. uh, within the United States. The database includes relevant demographic, disease, and treatment data, as well as overall survival data, which makes it very useful for researchers. So using this database, we, in our study, included all women who had either stage 1A2 or 1B1 cervical cancer, um, this is based on 2009, mm -hmm. who had uh, either squamous cell adenocarcinoma or adenosquamous histology. The patients had to have undergone either a radical or simple hysterectomy for their initial treatment. With those being our inclusion criteria, our exclusion criteria were, we had to exclude any patient with unknown surgical modality patients for whom this was not their first or only cancer diagnosis, those without a microscopic confirmation of cancer, and also those who received chemotherapy or radiotherapy prior to surgery. So after all these inclusions and exclusions, our final cohort included 3,469 patients. So then you had to then determine what constituted a low volume versus a medium volume versus a high volume uh, center. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, as to how you determined those three categories? Absolutely. So hospital volume was determined in our analysis using the number of simple and radical hysterectomies that were performed at a given hospital mm -hmm. in the previous year. It had to be for patients with uh, suspected, confirmed, or occult stage 1A2 and 1B1 cervical cancer. So for us, volume categories were defined based on patient level volume quartiles. So we essentially took the total number of patients that we had, split them into quarters, mm -hmm. and made each of those quarters a separate volume category. So we ended up with four. Mm -hmm. Based on these quartiles, low volume meant that a surgeon performed less than or equal to one surgery in the previous year. Medium low meant the volume was two surgeries in the previous year. Medium high was three to five, and high was six to 20. Yeah. Again, this is how the quartiles fell. It wasn't a number that I, I or any of my co-researchers um, arbitrarily assigned. Mm -hmm. Emily, w one of the things that certainly might come up, and, and I think you mentioned in your inclusion criteria, um, was the fact that you included a simple hysterectomy and not just a radical hysterectomy. And, and I think that you know, when, when looking at the, the, the aim of, of the impact of, of surgical volume, a lot would be interested 
in the in the radical hysterectomy group. And and my question is just uh, your your thoughts as to why did you include the simple hysterectomy as well? Um, would the, the the outcomes have been different had you looked at just radical hysterectomy? I'm really glad you asked this question. So the, to answer your first question, the NCPN guideline recommended surgery for patients with 1A2 and 1B1 cervical cancer is radical hysterectomy with lymph node assessment. Mm -hmm. So in order to determine the proportion of patients who received guideline concordant care, we needed to include all all the patients that underwent simple hysterectomy as well as radical hysterectomy who had this stage of diagnosis. This way we could look and see if hospital volume affected a patient's likelihood of receiving what the NCPN would consider an inadequate simple hysterectomy given the patient's stage of disease. Mm -hmm. So your, your second question was about whether we looked at rad radical hysterectomy alone and evaluated whether volume had an effect I'll tell you, we did look at it, but you'll have to wait to hear the answer to that. <laughs> yes, and, and, I, and I saw also that uh, in, in your uh, table in the manuscript, you also um, talk about the, the distribution of open versus minimally invasive uh, surgery in, in each of these groups. So I am, uh, I am interested in, in whether there was a, a broad a difference in terms of uh, the percentage of cases done in each group, or do you think that this distribution had any uh, impact on the outcomes of the study? Yeah, so when we looked across hospital volume categories, there was a trend towards more open surgeries at hospitals in the higher quartiles of volume. So higher volume centers did more open cases. Um, for example, in our highest quartile, 44% of patients received open surgeries, while in the lowest quartile, only 40% of patients received open surgery. Mm -hmm. This difference for us was not statistically significant, so you know I don't think there's any conclusions to draw from from it given that. Mm -hmm. And then now, one of the other things also that that uh, I think this this this, this is a, a really important study to to look at this is the outcomes and compliance with NCCN uh, guidelines. Um, first, I, I, before we get into the results of uh, what you actually found. Um, how, how did you evaluate compliance with NCCN guidelines and, and which outcomes did you evaluate specifically? So we defined NCCN guideline compliance as having a radical hysterectomy and lymph node assessment. Mm -hmm. um, of course, also in NCCN guidelines include the use of radiotherapy, you know, if, if not surgery. But since we wanted to understand guideline compliance surgery, we defined it as this and felt confident in that. We then compared guideline compliance across volume quartiles in a univariate analysis. Mm -hmm. The second secondary outcome measures that we looked at were survival. So we looked at five-year survival, we looked at 30-day mortality, and we looked at 90-day uh, mortality across all volume settings. Mm -hmm. And five-year survival, we took a deeper dive and actually looked at you know, what factors independently affected five-year survival, not just volume, but others as well. Okay. So now getting on to the, uh, the, the message, the results, what did, uh, what did you find? Um, what, what were the findings with, uh, as it pertains to each group, the comparisons? Um, what, what were the results? So in our analysis of 3,469 patients, 
1,058 were treated at low volume centers, 519 at medium low, 1,012 at medium high, and 880 at high volume centers. We found that patients who received surgery <clears throat> at high volume centers were 11% more likely to receive NCCN compliant surgical management compared to patients treated at low volume centers. Specifically, those at high volume centers had the right surgery 68% of the time versus this being the case only 56% of the time at low volume centers. This was, of course, statistically significant. Okay. Next, when we looked at survival outcomes, we found that there was no significant difference in five-year survival and 90-day mortality across volume quartiles. However, 30-day mortality was significantly lower at high. 30-day um, mortality, yes, was significantly lower at high volume centers. Um, there were zero deaths in 880 patients at high volume centers compared to one death in 1,058 patients at low volume centers. So very low numbers, um, but those were the results. Yeah. And Emily, one thing that I noticed was uh, interesting was that high volume centers were typically academic centers and low volume centers were more sort of like the community cancer centers. Um, did you find a difference in those two types of centers in terms of following NCCN guidelines based on whether it was an academic center or, or a community center? And what potential message can families or patients draw from, from, from this evaluation? Yeah. So we, we found that 71% of high-volume centers were academic or research facilities. Whereas your low volume centers, as you mentioned, were more likely to be comprehensive community cancer centers. <clears throat> when we looked at the differences in guideline compliance by facility type, we didn't find a significant difference. Specifically, when we looked at survival outcomes, there was no significant difference in mortality based on the facility at which a patient received their care. So for patients and families listening, I would say that based on our study, you know, I can't say whether or not it matters if you go to an academic research facility or not. However, we did find that you are more likely to receive guideline recommended care if the facility is one that sees a higher volume of cases, mm -hmm. which I know is not is not the best take home message because it's it's hard to know which center sees high versus low volume, you know, of patients with cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. I think more likely you're going to find higher volume of cases at academic centers, so that's probably the safer bet, but Based on this study itself, we can't say that. Yeah, yeah and I think it also kind of draws back to the uh, to the point of like, how do you define a high volume versus a medium volume um, center uh, when you know basically just broadly looking at all of the potential options that the patients might have. Um, Absolutely. So uh, you certainly you spoke a little bit about the assessment of uh, five year survival across the different volume centers. And, and I think that, that that will be important to to highlight to to our community of gynecologic oncologists as to the, the, the findings, um, particularly focusing on this uh, on this outcome. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, as I previously mentioned, approximately 90% of patients were alive at five years. And five-year survival was no different across quartiles of volume. Factors that did affect survival included age greater than 80, if you had Medicaid or Medicare insurance, and if you had a poorly differentiated cancer. These were all factors that, in our analysis, 
independently affected your survival. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned previously on the issue of uh, mortality. And you, you mentioned you looked at 30-day mortality and 90-day mortality. Um, do, you, do you think this had anything to do with the uh, volume of the centers or, or more so with like the morbidity profile of the patients seen at those centers? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, in this study, only three patients died from disease or complications related to surgery in 30 days and, and six within 90 days. So our numbers are very low. Mm. Um, statistically, there was no difference in 90-day mortality across volume quartiles. And statistically, there was a difference in 30-day mortality. However, the numbers are so small that it is, it is, it's a stretch to really make any substantial conclusions based off of these findings. But certainly, greater comorbidities could explain any differences that are found in survival, particularly in your 30-day and 90-day survival as this is what we were hoping to evaluate by including the different survival metrics in the same study. Mm. So absolutely, uh, greater comorbidity could explain the differences there. Yeah, and, and you actually mentioned in, uh, in your discussion a comparison to, to a very large Japanese study, I believe it was almost 6,000 patients, that found that um, high hospital volume was associated with lower recurrences and uh, lower all-cause uh, mortality. So wh- why do you think that there is a, a difference in terms of their findings versus your findings? Yeah, so the, the Japanese study was a very well-done series that included patients with stage 1B1 to 2B cervical cancer who were treated with rapamycin. You know, this is something that we don't really do in the United States, you know, surgical management of, you know, stage 2 and 2A and 2B cancers. So given the complexity of surgically treating patients with greater than 1B1 disease, it makes sense that there were there was, you know, far more to lose or gain with more experience. So additionally in this so that that may be one explanation for why our mm-hmm. it's probably a, a large explanation for why our findings were different. But additionally in the Japanese study, they had truly high volume hospitals. So their high volume category included hospitals with an average annual volume of greater than 21 cases, significantly higher than ours, which was anywhere between 6 and 21. Our higher, vo- our higher volume category wouldn't even fit into their high volume category. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just under it. So I think those are really the – their study was set up to, to really show differences in the extremes mm-hmm. where the surgical complexity, the surgeon's – um, technique and skill and experience uh, really would make a, a greater difference in that this patient cohort potentially. Right. So now you, you mentioned something that I found very interesting, that the, the guideline compliance surgery was generally 68% in high-volume centers, and although certainly higher than in low-volume centers, some might say – 68% is still a really low percentage of compliance with NCCN guidelines, uh, which then uh, certainly drives to the question as to why aren't high-volume centers, I don't know, over 90% compliant with the guidelines? They should be 100% compliant with the guidelines. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is always troubling when you, when, you, when you see these numbers and you know they should be 100%, but they're nowhere near it. This isn't the first volume analysis I've done, and every time it, it surprises me. 
So I want to say a lot of it's due to coding errors, but you know, all of it can't consistently <laughs> be due to coding errors. So with cervical cancer, there is always going to be your incidentally larger tumors that you know you think are a one A one, but end up being you know one A two. So you know that's going to account for some. But I, I agree with you. I think it's I, I think we need to do better. Mm-hmm. I think you know I don't know that as as you alluded to with your previous question that our centers we see enough cervical cancer volume to truly be high volume centers. So you know even considering a centralized care model yeah. where there are certain centers that serve as your cervical cancer treatment centers. You know this is something that I've heard mentioned a lot for ovarian cancer and for mm-hmm. cervical cancer, those diseases that are rare. And I think it's really something that needs to be evaluated for cervical cancer given given these findings and, and others. Yeah, that's a super important point. And, and I think uh, you know, that, that brings me to the next question that I wanted to ask you because you know, certainly we, we often hear or speak of high volume versus low volume centers in, in the United States for cervical cancer. You spoke of the of the numbers in in the in the Japanese studies that you know certainly highlight that in the U.S. Uh, we really don't have very high volume centers uh, when it comes to cervical cancer management, um, and I believe from 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 your study, uh, about seventy five percent of centers perform five or less hysterectomies for cervical cancer uh, per year, mm-hmm. uh, and high volume centers performing six to twenty per year. So what, what are your thoughts? Do we, do we really have anyone in the United States? I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Do we, do we really have any center in the United States doing high-volume hysterectomy for early cervical cancer? Well, you know, I do. I think we do. I think we do have some centers. I know at our center at Memorial Sloan County, we do more than 20 a year. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm, I'm sure at MD Anderson, you do more. I, I'm sure there are some um, centers in the South, for example, where the you know, the prevalence of disease is higher where they are truly high volume centers. But for the most part, yeah, I'm with you. I don't know that we have high volume centers uh, for cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. which really is, as we just, you know, mentioned, is the exact scenario where centralization of care becomes more important. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there are pros and cons to that, burden for patients, travel, et cetera, but even entertaining this type of model, I think, is worthwhile given what we just discussed. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's it's an excellent point. And um, so now, obviously, I, I, I enjoyed reading your your manuscript. I really learned a, a great deal, and, and I, obviously, I want to congratulate you on it uh, again. But there there will be critics, and and there's always limitations to to the studies. Um, what would you highlight as the main limitations of, of your study and, and how would you address those? Yeah, there's, there are always limitations, particularly when you're using a large administrative data set where, you know, the intent behind the surgery cannot be captured and the intent behind treatment decisions, et cetera, you, things that you can't capture really limit your ability to draw concrete conclusions. Um, so specific limitations to our analysis would be one that we could not parallel and accompany our hospital volume analysis with a provider volume analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were able to, in the NCDB, in the National Cancer Database, it's, it does not provide provider-level data 
to where you could actually do an analysis looking at provider-specific volume. If, if we could have done this analysis, we could have pulled out the highest volume providers ac across the country independent of center and, and performed the same analysis to see if there were any differences. This, this would have been a strength. This would have really added a lot to the paper and to our findings, to the cre credibility of the findings. Mm -hmm. Additionally, our, our ability to capture um, subsequent treatment is also limited in this data set. Not as relevant, but it, it would be good to see at lower volume centers where the initial treatment is inadequate, what happens after that to see what mitigates the potential survival differences in these patients. Um, those are two of the main limitations I felt to be present in the study. Yeah, that's excellent points. Um, so through the, these podcasts, uh, obviously we have the great fortune of, of hearing it directly from, from the primary author of these manuscripts. And, and the, the question I always have is, um, for anyone reading this manuscript as they move forward in their practice and say, how should the results of this study impact how I manage patients, how I counsel patients? Um, in your own words, what would you say to our audience? Yeah, just follow the guidelines, really. <laughs> <laughs> just follow the guidelines. No, I, th I think the, the findings of this study provide important direction for future efforts. Um, we as a society n need to determine how we can elevate the standard of care all patients receive across the country, regardless of what, what center they're receiving it. If this means a more centralized care model, great. If this means identifying guideline uh, providers or centers that are not in compliance at a certain level and doing a remediation, maybe that that would be a great outcome from this. Um, but really, the purpose of this study was to highlight that we have work to do in elevating the standard of care across the country for patients with early-stage cervical cancer so that no one, no one is missed, no one's left behind in a highly curable disease is cured as frequently as possible, no matter where you're receiving your care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really great uh, closing remark. Um, Emmeline, thank you so much. I congratulate you on this work. Uh, I want to congratulate you also on becoming uh, the, the newest faculty at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, they, they, I'm sure, are extremely uh, proud and, uh, and, and fortunate to have you. Thank you for the contributions you made to gynecologic oncology, and we look uh, forward to many more. Thank you so much. This was really a delight. Thank you.